anxiety is a thing. It's just there to tell you something. And if we learn to actually be with it, it's there to share a message with us. It's like, oh, maybe you should whatever, take a nap, or maybe you should go to the ocean and put your feet in the water. Maybe you need to call a friend or maybe you need, whatever, but it has a direction inside of it. What would you do all over again and why? I'm Natalie Carpenter, women's health and fertility advocate, dot connector, and former corporate brand warrior. Each week, join me in candid conversation with an inspiring public figure who boldly shares their real-life stories of adversity, impact, and what they did next, and if they would do it all over again, knowing what they know now. Welcome to the All Over Again podcast. Biet Simkin is a world-renowned spiritual teacher and best-selling author, dubbed the David Bowie of meditation. Biet weaves the world of pop culture and spirituality, teaching practical applications from ancient spiritual wisdom. The teachings are featured in Biet's book, Don't Just Sit There. Raised by a shaman in New York City, Biet signed to Sony Records at the age of 19 as a singer-songwriter and also became a high-profile DJ. Following a string of life-changing events, including the sudden loss of her daughter, Biet turned to her lifetime study of meditation and launched the Guided by Biet series, groundbreaking events scored by Biet's own music, mixing meditation with pop culture. Biet is best known for modernizing the spiritual path and has been called the meditation guru for the next generation. Today, Biet Simkin and I talked about everything that she would do all over again, including her path to motherhood, her experiences with loss and grief and addiction, as well as her path in redefining enlightenment. Yet, I'm so excited that you're here today. I can hardly literally contain myself. So I'm going to try my best to stay on topic and not talk to you about all of the different things that I want to talk to you about that will take absolutely forever. So you've experienced quite a bit of adversity in your lifetime, especially at such a young age. Would you mind sharing a little bit about it and how the grief and the loss at such a young age really sort of developed you into who you are today? Yeah. You know, I had a really traumatic childhood. I think that it started with being an immigrant, which is in and of itself very difficult. Coming to a new country, family not knowing the language, not having any money, having government cheese sent to your house like we were literally off the plane a month before I was born. And then after that, everyone started to die. And sort of very suddenly, my mom died when I was six out of nowhere. And then every grandparent died subsequently after that. So it was just kind of funeral after funeral. But I, I think you know this, my father was kind of this awakened shaman guy. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but he was this incredible spiritual teacher. And so I wasn't quite left with a father. Some people, when they lose a parent, they are left with a parent. I would say I was not left with a parent. I would say I was left with a artist, philosopher, spiritual teacher, guru, who lived in my house and perpetually talked about the meaning of life and reminded me what it meant to be in a state of enlightenment. And so it wasn't until later when I had a whole new slew of tragedies in my 20s. He died. My first daughter died of sudden infant death syndrome. My house burnt down. My best friend hung himself. And it all happened like within a year. 
It was in that time that I learned that I did not have my own core of spirituality. I had him. I kind of revolved around him like the sun. So it was when he died when I was 28 that I turned my life over to his work and ended up actually finding my own definition of reality, my own spiritual work that I now share with the world in great numbers. And yeah, and it all came from from him and also from those losses, from that grief point too, because I think a lot of people can really relate when you really can't bullshit me, especially like my private clients, anyone who works with me or anyone who comes to my events, everyone has a story of why their victim bullcrap makes it okay for them to give up on themselves or to not be the full version of themselves or to suffer, you know? And I'm like, look, you're talking to the wrong girl. I just, I have your number. And I think people really feel held and seen when they can be loved by someone who's willing to step into their greatness, even though they've experienced depression, even though they've walked through heroin addiction, even though they've lost so many people in their lives that I think most people spend their lives like, hoping they never have to lose people. You know what I mean? They're like, oh God, I hope that doesn't happen. I'm like the story of so many things people wish they never would have to go through. I remember feeling so grateful for the longest time that I hadn't experienced the loss of someone very close to me. And then when that started happening, I was almost left shell-shocked. So I can understand what you're saying about so many people sort of spend their whole lives trying to avoid that or thinking that it's never going to happen and being completely unaware about it because that was me. So you talked about helping your clients and, and, and those that you are working with to feel seen and heard and held. Who did that for you? Several people, you know, I feel very blessed to, and again, for me, when I was walking this journey, I had no money. And just about nine years ago, I was on food stamps and I just was living in complete poverty my whole life. And so for me, the things that came, I remember for me, I would meditate and pray. And then I would find a book on the sidewalk for like a dollar that then would subsequently like change my life or like lead me to the next piece and lead me to the next piece. Yeah, no, I feel like I was really, really taken care of. First, it was my father. That was the person who originally held me. But when he died, I felt like he could help me more from the other side, if that makes any sense. I know that sounds really a little woo-woo. I'm not saying that like literally messages were coming down, but every teacher I had after him, I felt like he was bringing these teachers to me and helped me to return to fourth way work and become the teacher that I am today. He brought me teachers that brought back the breath work that he and I had done when I was little. He brought me teachers that helped me with somatic work that him and I had done. When, so it was like all this resurgence of things that we had left behind because he died. That's amazing that you still feel that his presence is with you. I love this idea of still being connected, even though not physically present. And this is something that I'm, I'm really trying to tap into myself with the loss of my father recently. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about how you felt confident that your father was and is still with you. That was obvious to me because the love, it, it never goes away. When you love someone like that and you're loved like that, it can't be disintegrated because love doesn't exist inside of time. It exists in, in infinity. So you are that love. Like I am my father. The, the love that my father had for me is a part of who I am. 
that was one thing. Another thing that really works for me, and this works more with my mom than with my dad, because my mom also died when I was six. And for me, that loss is, if anything, the greatest loss I've ever had in my entire life. To lose a mother, like especially once I had girl, now I have two girls, to think of them losing me at such a young age, I just can't even imagine how I lived through that and lived to tell the story because it is so heartbreaking. But one thing that I do, and for anyone listening and for you, maybe this might be helpful as a tool, is I ask her to speak through me. And before I go out to speak publicly or before I do anything, I just say, mom, please speak through me, use my voice, use my body as your channel, anything that you didn't get to say while you were here on this planet, like use me as your vessel. And I find that when I do that, it's like I'm animated by something that is very, very high. From an energetic perspective. Yeah. And from from also like we all babble a lot and say recurring things that aren't really that interesting to us because we're humans. And that's kind of how we survive. We're like, oh, yeah, it's raining. Yes, the weather's nice. Yeah, your hair looks great, blah, blah, blah. But really, like we, we want to say is these meaningful things that come from the core of our being. And I find that when I meditate and I ask the universe or God or my mother or whoever to speak through me, I take that moment to pause. I then too am surprised by the things that come out of my mouth, which I think is exciting, you know, to see yourself as a stranger in a way, like that you get to get to know yourself on a daily basis, not to pretend, oh, well, I knew Biet yesterday, so I must know her today. It's like, no, I actually have no idea who Biet is because all my molecules, all the cells in my body have already regenerated. I have no idea who I am today. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that you're constantly evolving. That's beautiful. And when you think about your relationship with your mother as a six-year-old and versus now, do you know and feel just as deep of a connection now that you did then? It's much more heartbreaking now, you know, because when I was a kid and I had my mother, I just loved her. Like there's this, this thing they did, this study where they gave people that had no hearing their hearing back by giving them like an insert. I don't know if you've heard of that or seen it on the internet, but there's video footage of people getting their hearing back who are deaf, legally deaf. And the, uh, the children who get their hearing, who are like, two or three getting their hearing for the first time start to laugh because they're like, oh my God, I'm hearing something. And they're like, ha ha ha, like sound, oh my God, right? And the adults who've had no hearing for 30, 40, 50 years start to weep. And like, to me, that is, I am 44 years old and I have 38 of those or 37 of those years are motherless. And so it's so heartbreaking to me. And so when I feel my mother and I feel the love of my mother, it's, it's riddled with this grief and bittersweet sadness. And when she was alive, it wasn't like that. It was, it was just love, unadulterated child love, you know, which you know from having your beautiful girl. And so it's just not the same. It's very, very different. And to speak to the audience and to you when you are someone who's lost someone like that, it's like you can look at that as a handicap that now this love is riddled with all this grief, or you could look at it as a superpower. 
to me, like losing my mom and having that heartache that's so palpable and so present to me every single day is my window into why I remember the meaning of life, is my window into why I make incredible music, is my window into why I'm a terrific mom and an amazing wife. And all the things that I do with my full self today are born inside of and from that bittersweet love and grief that she left me. You've touched on something that I'm very interested to also understand, music. Where did your love for music come from and how did it become such an integral part of your meditative practice? I love that question. I have no fucking idea. Like I was born like this. I mean, my grandfather was the first chair violinist for the Leningrad Philharmonic. My dad was a saxophone player. There was music in my blood for whatever that's worth. But I came out singing like they used to call me the singing baby when they strolled me around in the little stroller when I was a little baby. So I think it was just something that I came here with. And I was writing country songs by the time I was five. My dad was like, I don't know why she loves the country music so much. You know, we are not from the South, but she writes the country songs. So, yeah. And then I got signed to Sony when I was 18 and, you know, recorded records and did tours. And then I toured by myself once that all went to crap because of my alcoholism and also because of the dying music industry that was of the, you know, the late 90s. So what kind of music did you write and produce? Because I would not have guessed that you were into country. I I mean, I would sort of guess rock and roll. Yes. So tell us about your music. My music's not really country. I definitely would like to make a country record one day, but I feel like it would be in the genre of Coldplay. Oh, I love that. It's yeah. amazing. And so how do you how do you combine the music with your work? I founded a meditation system and I formed this incredible breathwork practice, which I bring to the world. It gets you as high as heroin and whippets in four minutes. And I do it in huge events. I started out by doing events in galleries in New York City because my vision was I'm like a New York City born and raised, grit and grind, like The streets of New York are my home. I was a DJ for eight years. Like I'm an artist through and through. And I felt like in the art scene in New York and the fashion scene in New York, which I was a a big part of, I didn't feel like there was enough spirituality there. I felt like there was a vapidity there and there was like a cattiness there and a lot of vanity that, you know, we're all vain. I'm at the top of tier of being very vain, but like, I just feel like there was a depth missing and the same route. I felt like when I went to Shivananda or any of these like yoga studios or, you know, even hipper ones, which I won't name, like, I just felt like there was something missing there. Everybody was wearing bindis and like kind of doing this whole like yogic under eating thing and like wearing the weird spandex and like there was no fashion to be had and everything was off brand by my account. And so I felt very like alone and divided in both worlds. And the yoga world, I felt very at peace with my spirit, but I didn't feel like my cultural sense and my intellectual sense was being stimulated and my sense of vanity and beauty was not being stimulated. And then when I went to these fashion and art events and music events, I felt like people were drunk, people were vapid, people were banging Budweiser's over each other's heads. And it wasn't It wasn't civilized. And so what I wanted to do was bring these worlds together and ask, what if we actually let people meditate 
before they listen to music? Or what if we, you know, what if we had musical acts perform right after the experience? And so I ended up doing an event at like the Museum of Modern Art, you know, and it's, it's all about bringing these worlds together. And I would say that's the crux of my work. And that's why my music doesn't sound like if you, if you've ever heard like Kundalini chanting music or something like that, my music does not sound anything like that, because I'm not trying to bring people into that world. If you want to go down the Kundalini rabbit hole, there are so many schools that will take you down that. For me, I'm trying to bring people to a world where they can stay in their life, buy real estate, have sex, make babies, make art, win Oscars, wear fashionable clothes, like go on diets, like do vain, dumb shit, things you would never think are spiritual, and then still find enlightenment while you're doing all that. And also validation that it's okay. Yeah, well, it has to be okay. Otherwise, you're just going to be one of these people who feels guilty for living a life and being a householder. It's like the crux of Catholicism. I don't know if I should be (laughs) saying that, but it is, right? And I'm hearing you say that you're evoking all of these beautiful different senses and so that people feel seen and heard and can live their lives without feeling guilty. Yes, but feeling good in a way that serves themselves and ultimately by doing good for themselves will do good for others. Absolutely. I don't even see that there's a self or others. To me, those things are synonymous. There is no self if there's no others. There's no others if there's no self. Can you explain that to me just a little bit more? Well, when I think of self-service, like when I think of like, oh, I need to take care of myself, it feels very myopic and lonely, you know? And I think that people can often take that rabbit hole too. You'll see people being like, I'm taking care of myself. And then there's this like, you're meditating, but your kid needs your attention. It kind of like, you gotta take, you gotta have a holistic viewpoint about it. So the way I see it is I don't take care of myself. I take care of one thing, which is I call, I call it God. I'm not spiritual. I mean, I'm not religious at all. I take care of my spirit. And if I take care of my spirit, my spirit takes care of me. And I find that then I have an endless supply of energy to give to others. And also, I remember that every person I meet, you at this moment or the person that I'm meeting, is an embodiment of that thing. My spirit is an embodiment of God. And so I just try to give as much in every moment that I can and also to suck the marrow from life. Not to vampire from people, though, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not taking from you. I want to give to you, but I take from the divine and then I give to you, you know? Have I even asked you the question yet? I don't think I have. Is there anything that you would do all over again? And why? Do differently or do the same? Either way. Is there anything that you would do or not do all over again? I used to think that if I just became spiritual enough, or if I just became perfect enough, if I just became thin enough, if I just became famous enough, rich enough, whatever enough, then I would finally be able to exit off this godforsaken planet and go into the sphere of enlightenment where I am one with all things, and I am in a state of love at all times, and I have no feelings. I just have oneness with reality, a constant stream. That was my only hope because that's what I was sold by every spiritual teacher that ever came before me, which by the way, was always some old dude with a beard. But may I not digress, as a woman who is bringing spirituality to the world today, one thing that I found was that once I finally stopped looking for that 
impossible thing to happen, which is that for me to be this like walking embodiment of better, better than you and better than everybody else at all times. What was I? And it, it dawned on me that I just loved this place. I love this world. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I would do all of it all over again. If I died tomorrow, if I died in 40 years, whenever I die, if someone was to say to me, you get to come back and be Biet all over again, lose your mother, live in poverty, wake up, find enlightenment, find the man of your dreams, create a career that affects millions of people, like write books, travel the world. You could do it all over again with all the fucked up sadness, you know, break up with that boyfriend 90 times, cry on the floor like you don't know what to do, withdraw from heroin in a room for two days, you know, live in so much poverty that I like, I had to shoplift to survive. I would do all of it all over again. Absolutely. Sounds so fun to me now. Well, you've lived it. So you know how it turns out. Yes, but I think we all know, though, deep inside, we all know how it turns out. Do you know what I mean? I'm getting there. I'm trying to understand that. Mm. You know, I believe in fate. I don't actually think that believe that things happen for a reason. That's just my personal belief. I don't believe that things happen for a reason. I don't believe that someone gets hit by a bus, that that was for a reason. I believe in fate. I believe that that just happened. So because I believe in fate, I don't believe in coincidences. Mm. But I still just don't believe that everything has to happen for a reason. But a I, reason. I am trying to understand in the bigger picture and the construct of life that it's all supposed to just, it's all unfolding. And my biggest sort of, if you must know, my biggest hangup is control, right? And, and not knowing what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. It's the control of it, right? Like I have a very type A personality. I like to know where things are going to go. I like to plan. I'm a messy perfectionist, but I am a perfectionist. I can't help myself. And I'm learning to embrace that, but also understand that I'm not going to know the answers and that's okay. And that's very hard because, you know, I think also when we're tricked at a young age, at least I was tricked to think I've got all of these, these answers because I've worked so hard to set everything up just like so. And if I work so hard, well, then I'm going to get the reward. And then when life started handing to me, like infertility and things like that, like you, I just couldn't, I couldn't control that outcome no matter how hard I tried. And so that element has been very interesting for me to realize that I have absolutely no control in the scheme of life and that I just have to accept it. It's a learning. I'm getting there. I love watching you. Thank you. It's all about the process. I, I'm understanding that we're all students of life and this is what you teach. And I want to know what was the moment when you felt like you were called to do the work that you are doing? Before I did it for a living, I just was this. I've always been this person. I have so many insecurities. Like I, I have a feeling that I'm fat. That's something that I think, you know, I'm sure like most women living in our generation think that, but I actually like really think I'm fat, which is hilarious to my husband, for instance, who's like, what is wrong with you? You're crazy. 
whatever, putting him aside, the point is, is that I have an insecurity that I'm fat and I have insecurities like that, just like very worldly things. Some things I'm not insecure about. It's like, I don't have any insecurity about this gift that I have that I give to the world. It's never a question for me. I'm not like, I don't have like imposter syndrome where I go home and I'm like, I don't know if everyone will get it. I don't know that, but I know for sure who I am without a shadow of a doubt. And so for me, it was like, I knew the secret of the universe from the time that I was very small. It was just something that I was, I was an embodiment of that. And then when I gifted that to my friends for years. I just was that. I think people hung out with me for that reason. Like if I think about all the parties I was invited to and all the mansions I lived in and all the varied things, the way that I was carried through life, it was all because I had the secret. You know, I held this secret. I remember people that I knew when I was deep in my addiction, deep in my drinking, deep in my poverty, people who saw me become a successful, famous spiritual teacher were like not surprised at all. You know, they were like, not surprised. And it was just like, you know, if you're asking the actual moment, I prayed and meditated every single day for four years, just prayed and prayed and prayed on my knees and just said, look, I'll do whatever the fuck you want. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what you want from me. And one day, really very simply, a voice came down and said, hey, I'm here to tell you what your mission is in life. And I was like, okay, what is it? And they were like, you're a spiritual teacher. And I was like, what? You know, I was just super surprised. I didn't, it's funny how we don't see the most obvious things. Yet everyone around you saw it so clearly. And so when you moved down that path, they were like, oh, of course, of course you're doing that because that's what you were meant to do. Exactly. But it was because I was so identified with all this other stuff, like being hot and being well-dressed and being a New Yorker and like dating the right person. I was so obsessed with these very, simple, shallow things, which I, by the way, I take very seriously and I help my clients to take very seriously. Like I'm not someone who looks down at those things, but at the same time, because I was so subsumed with that stuff, it, it was hard for me to see. I remember one time texting this guy that I was dating. I was like, okay, tell me two things you think are like amazing about me. And I really wanted him to say like, you're super hot and you're super beautiful. Something like that. You know, like I was just fishing for a compliment and he was like, you're the wisest person I've ever met. And I was like, fuck you. I was so angry. I did not want that. I was like, what am I Yoda? Like that doesn't sound fuckable. Like I, I'm so not into this right now. And so when I actually found out, I was also, when I found out I was a spiritual teacher, I was very confused because the branding was completely off back then. When I found out the only spiritual teachers that existed were really Osho and fucking whatever. Like it just, I wasn't Ram Das. you know, I'm not like some old dude with a beard. That's exactly what came to mind. An older <laughs> man with a beard, like a really long beard. Scraggly has been growing it for a long time. <laughs> How do you teach your clients to find their secret or the secret? Do you do both? And what does that look like? That's a big question. Sorry. No, that's okay. I'm happy to answer that. I teach my clients because everybody is the secret. So it's not like I have something that is unique to me. It's just a matter of doing the right things, taking the right actions and not being lost in your process, right? So if you're somebody who actually has the secret in you, which 
you are because everybody is. And you start to get uncomfortable because you feel something's off about my life, whether I'm confused or I feel insecure, I feel doubtful or I'm missing something. I'm missing something. It hurts. Something hurts. feels off. And so you start searching. But if you don't find the right teacher and you don't actually do the right work, you will be confused forever. You will be lost forever. Yes, you will. That's actually what will happen. One must actually take very simple steps and do very simple things and take suggestions. And if they do, they become a living embodiment of the thing that I'm teaching. I don't need to really do anything. I'm actually just there to give them the directions of what to do. So you're sharing a teaching that will help someone in their own sort of individual experience become unstuck. Correct. They have to be willing to do the work. Yes. That's the only real thing that they need to be willing to do is the work. And I think for some people, that's got to be hard and right. And it has to be the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yes. What is an example of a moment where you just knew? I mean, it sounds like you always knew that this was the work that you were supposed to be doing. Was there a moment when someone had this huge epiphany or moment where they became wildly successful in, in doing what you knew that they had you know, the gift to do and that they maybe knew deep down, but maybe just for whatever reason couldn't get to like, what, what's a, can you share a story of an experience that reminded you that this is exactly why you're doing the work that you're doing? It was everyone that I drew to me. You know, once I actually launched this out as a business, my career took off like a wildfire. I the the galleries that I partnered with, we the, the events went from 12 people to 200 people quite quickly and that was a New York, you know, for a New York event, that's a pretty sizable New York City event for people to just come together. Everybody that I worked with, I would just see these transformations occur. I remember people coming to me not knowing that they were gay. And then by the time I was done with them or not even done, just, we were like four months in and I was like, dude, (laughs) like this is what's happening. And those people are now living fully embodied lives as the person that they've always, always wished they could be, you know, something like that, or just people would come lost and have addictions. They were addicted to alcohol. They were addicted to drugs. They were addicted to sex and prostitution, whatever. And I was able to walk them through and out of those addictions Whatever it be, and also like relationships, a lot of my clients like were really, really lost when it came to relationships. And I would take them through these in-depth relationship inventories. And on the other side, they were able to find the partner of their dreams and actually have a really healthy relationship for the first time in their life, you know, something that really worked. So it's just a story after story after story that made me feel like, wow, like these people are just doing what I did and it's working for them. And you've helped a lot of people successfully overcome addictions. And by overcoming, I mean, I know that this is a constant, right? That, that it's a constant recovery, right? Yes. You've got these, these clients that are overcoming addiction. What is the secret sauce that helps them overcome addiction? Like, what do they have to do to truly get into the mindset that they can understand that that's where they're at, but they don't need it anymore. It's a matter of surrender. The opposite of control is surrender, right? It's like this melting away and falling to the ground. I help people to reach a point where they're willing to fall to their knees and actually listen to their inner knowing. 
And so that's different for different people. Some people, when they fall to the ground and say, look, my hand's in the air, I'll do whatever you say, the voice says to them, you need to go to AA. And that person then goes to AA and that's where they find that freedom. Another person falls to the ground and, and they hear a different message. They hear a message that they need to like move to a different country or they need to have a divorce or they need to like, there's always a next step, a thing that I think all of us can relate to. There's a voice in our head saying, Hey, the next thing is that you have to do this. And most of us have our fingers in the air with a big fuck you and are like, no, I don't want to do that. So that's the difference between, I would say someone who's actually living in a state where enlightenment is guiding their path versus a state where they're chasing something and trying to finally find enlightenment. Once you've found enlightenment, you're just in a state of perpetually doing what the voice tells you to do. So I'm hearing you say that we all should be listening to our inner voice and that our inner voice will guide us. What I'd love to know is how you're redefining enlightenment. So for me, you guys know, you, you know, enlightenment has been taught to us in this way. It's like, if you find it, right, the Buddhist idea, right, you find it, you never have a feeling again, you're just like wise and you sit in a robe at the top of a mountain, you're better than everybody, you've heard that. And so I was like questing for this my whole life and I would find it. I was like, this is it. I would find sometimes I'd be in that state for a week. Sometimes I'd be in that state for five hours. But the point is, is I was in it for quite some time, like these white light experiences, completely stone cold sober, as good as being on ecstasy and LSD and mushrooms at the same time, like all the things. And then afterwards, I would be like a flawed human again. You know, like I would have white light experience and then I'd be on a stage in front of thousands of people like pretending like I was this thing when really like I am much more than that thing. I am so many things. I am also a bitchy wife and I'm also a person who has fear. I'm a person who has a phobia of needles. I'm a person who doesn't super love C-sections even though I've had three of them at this point. Like I'm a human being who's inter interfacing with reality. Anyway, so my friend Arjuna did this study where he studied brilliant people and he created this diorama that I then meditated on and decided I was going to use the diorama as my new definition of enlightenment. So let's use a clock to describe it. A clock has 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock. So 12 o'clock is enlightenment, imagine. And imagine that enlightenment now is no longer like a one thing, but instead it's a part of a moving unit that you go through over and over again. So 12 o'clock is this feeling of like, you're fully embodied, you remember who you are, you're no longer feeling any insecurity or doubt. There's music blasting, there's tears welled up in your eyes, the wind is blowing and you're just like... I remember the meaning of it all, right? And in a much more dramatic sense, it might even be more subtle. Like you're walking down a foggy street in the, in the middle of the evening, coming home from an event, and you look around you and you just remember exactly who you are and the meaning of it all. Very peaceful, almost, almost in, inconsequential, but you know that it's the most important moment of your life. And I'm guessing that even as I say this, you're remembering moments like this where you were like fully there. And so that's followed by three o'clock. Three o'clock is creative flow. And it's like where 
you're tasked by this energy that you just found in 12 o'clock to go do something. So three o'clock, you'll start a podcast or you'll write a book or you'll start a business or you'll launch a record or you'll write a screenplay or you'll get married or you'll buy a home and like re gut decorate it. Like there's a creative flow, right? And then you're followed by six o'clock, which I think for me was like the antithesis of spirituality. So six o'clock is called achievement and achievement is like reaching for it, right? So what do you, are you going to do IG lives? Are you going to go to marketing events? Are you going to go to like brunches and meet with people? Are you going to wear a name tag that says, Hey, my name is Natalie. Or like, Hey, my name is Biet. And I'm like just a little person on the planet, you know, and then you go and you do stuff right. And cold calls and weird, you know, sales, who knows whatever is involved inside or, or fundraising. Some people I know are like saving animals in Africa and they need to fundraise and fundraise and fundraise so that they can go heal these elephants. So it's the action. It's actions. Yeah. And so like, again, those actions can feel really non-spiritual, but I'm saying, no, actually all of this is part of enlightenment. Enlightenment is just kind of like, like the feeling, the source energy, the core, and then it has to play itself out. So this is the kicker, nine o'clock, nine o'clock, we call humility. And nine o'clock is where everything you've done turns to shit. Nothing you try is working. You don't get the fundraising. The fundraiser that was about to put in the most money pulls out. You're about to get written up in the New York Times, but they decided not to publish you. And in fact, they wrote about your nemesis, someone you think is a total a-hole. And then you got an email from some event you were going to do. Madison Square Garden was going to have you, but then they changed their minds. Like nine o'clock is that punch in the gut when everything you thought you could have everything you wanted has been taken from you. And you fall to your knees and you say, look, universe, source, God, fucking angels, whatever the fuck you want to call that thing. And you say, please help me. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know who I am. I don't know what my purpose is. And then something happens in that moment where we're stripped of our control, like you were saying, and we're, we're given complete disappearance. And in our disappearance, the light appears. And that we are brought back to enlightenment and boom, enlightenment comes again and we are in the state and then so on the circle goes, you know, but it really requires all these pieces. And once you get that enlightenment is actually all of these pieces rather than just one, then you, you know, you're not so stressed out. It's not goal oriented anymore. And I'll say one more thing because last night I like to keep things very fresh. Last night I watched a movie. It was a film called Lucy by a man named Luc Bresson, who's one of my favorite directors. And so this film is all about this woman who basically enters a state of enlightenment. But the way that they have it in the film is that she's able to use a hundred percent of her brain capacity. You know, we only use like 10% of our brains. So the film is all about what would that even look like? And it kind of is this beautiful, artistic film, very similar to the matrix of like, what does a human become if they're able to use a hundred percent of their brain? And in this movie, she's able to like affect matter and like hit someone from like 50 miles away or like enter into their television by messing with radio waves and all this. So it's, it's sci-fi. But the point of it is that like, I don't want to ruin this film for everybody, but she dies very quickly. And 
She's not emotional about it because she's reached a state of enlightenment. Her whole 24 hours, the last 24 hours of her life are spent in a state of enlightenment. So she's not like attached to life. She's in 12 o'clock the whole time. But what I'm going to make a point of is I used to watch films like this and I was like, see, like this is enlightenment where you remember that you are one with all things and you have no boundary. You're just free. You have no more emotions. You're not attached and you can do anything. You're a magician. You're everywhere. But then it's like, no, actually, that only lasts for 24 hours. Even in the movie, it only lasts for 24 hours. So it's like, oh, like, I'm just getting chills thinking about it. Like once you can see that that state is not meant to be forever, it's meant to be a part of an entire experience, then you can have a raw, rough, rugged life that ends in a painful death. And it still was a huge success. All of these things are playing in my, in my mind, including there was a book I read so long ago, and I cannot remember what it was called or who it was by, but I think it was about the ancient Mayans, right? And how that entire culture sort of disappeared. And this whole idea that it's because they achieved spiritual enlightenment, and so they lived beyond this world, was the whole idea and the premise of this book. And I thought, wow, that is so fascinating. And it talked about finding flow to try to emulate experiences like that and so on and so forth. But as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, then perhaps that is, right? We cannot exist in a state like that for a perpetual period of time. That's not human. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yes. I'm also saying that fuck yes to disappearing and fuck yes to being so high that you literally disappear, but also fuck yes to the gripping, grieving, crying, gnawing, painful reality that is returning from that state and forgetting who you are. My clients forget who they are. And you know why I'm an amazing teacher for them? Because guess what? I forget who I am too. The only difference is that I don't mind anymore. I just love it. I'm like, I have forgotten who I am. This is a fun sequence. It's a sequence. It's like, would you really want the Nutcracker? Would you want opera if everyone didn't drop dead in it? Would you want a song if it didn't have heartbreak in it? Like, would you watch a film at all if it didn't have bad points and good points? No. Right. And this is why we talk about what we would do or not do all over again, because we would do it all over again. Most of us would. Because it's the experience, right? And the choose your own adventure that comes from it and being able to look back and say, wow, but I, I love this idea of redefining enlightenment. It also doesn't feel so unachievable or unattainable or, you know, I need to be an old man with a beard. Yeah, I hope that by the time I die, the archetype of spiritual teacher just looks like a chick with a hat because... I'm bringing it like I am bringing a completely different thing. And if I can help an entire generation of people, namely women, to just fucking relax, my job will have been completed. For well, sure. I appreciate you bringing it. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. So you've shared that you wouldn't have actually been able to be a mom because of a near death experience, a uterine tumor and woken up from your lost state of addiction. and also woken up from poverty, if it wasn't for Ula, how did your sweet girl change you? And I, I want to take a moment, you know, to dedicate some space to her because she had such a profound effect 
on your life and on this life during her very brief period on earth. I think it's important to share her name and also talk about her. I was just holding my daughter. I have a new daughter. She's two, she's almost three months old. Her name is Sunday. And I was holding her in my arms last night and it was dark. And I had just, I just started weeping because I remembered the visceral sensation of holding Ula and the way I loved her and, and also holding her dead body in my arms. And she was only four months old. She was only one month and a week older than Sunday is today, you know? And I just was holding, and they look very similar too, you know, because they're both my daughters and just holding her in my arms and crying. What a gift, what a gift that my daughter gave me. I believe that we don't live the same life over and over and over again. I believe that we live many, many, many lives. And it seems to me like Ula and I have done that for each other before. Like it didn't feel like a debt unpaid. To come to this planet just to die is a nice little treat. By the way, I don't think from the other side, like from the astral plane, I don't think coming here to die that quickly is that big an ask. Because you already know like, okay, I'll go and then I'll be in the astral plane and then I'll be everything again. And then I'll come back and be a baby again, like blah. Like it feels much simpler, I think, from the other side. But here, you know, I just feel like um, her and I have a destiny to do anything for each other. So I feel very much like I'm game to do whatever for Ula as well. As, but I think she came here just to gift me that. So for anyone who's listening, who's had that kind of loss, Maybe it was a baby. It's rare. But if it's not, it could be your mother. It could be your father. It could be a sister, a brother. I mean, there are so many ways in which the sauce is given to us. But if you can just start to view it as an agreement that you made before you came here and say, like, me, my soul and the soul of this being had an agreement that we were going to do this fucked up shit here on this planet. Like, wow. And for what? And you said nothing like you don't believe everything happens for a reason. I think you're right in a sense, because the word reason kind of takes out the beauty of what it what we're really talking about. Right. We want to cross the bridge of reason into the unknowable, into the unfathomable. I can make all kinds of reasons why Ula came here and why she died. But at the end of the day, my gift is that I get to feel this heartbreak. That's so profound and so hard. How do you view the grief and how do you support your clients with their grief? Because grief, I, I, I love this saying that grief is just love with nowhere to go. But how do you support yourself, number one, and number two, your clients? I help people to feel all of their feelings. I think most of us don't know how to feel our feelings. And I help people to embody their feelings, to be a walking dance. Like I remember once I met Maya Angelou, I had the privilege of, she came to my little school once when I was in high school. My high school was very, very small. So this was like me and 15 kids in a, in a classroom in the Upper East Side. And she came into the room, Maya Angelou, when she comes into a room, it's no joke. Like she was a, she was a force. And I remember her saying, she's a big woman, not, she didn't look like a dancer. You know, she was an author and a poet, but she was like big, but she apparently had been a dancer in her youth. I didn't know that. And she said, once a dancer, always a dancer. And she said, there was something about when you dance, it's like, you are always dancing, like with life. 
And so I believe I help people and myself to feel the way Maya Angelou feels about being a dancer, of dancing the emotions that are inside me, finding a voice for those emotions, not being a prison where those things don't have a way to move and actually articulate themselves in the world. Because when a person is a dancer of what they've lived through, of that grief, those feelings become the core of the creations that they make on this planet and everything they leave behind. Like when you think about your eulogy, like what are they going to say about you when you die? I believe that if a man or a woman is living in their greatness, the creations that they will have made will have been born out of the seeds of that grief that they were given. So it's kind of like, wow. Yes. I'm just kind of like mind blown over here thinking about all of the elements. It's a lot and beautiful. My mind is blown. If someone is looking to support their mental health, what is the first step that you would recommend to someone to take when trying to approach spiritual meditation? I would say pray. And like if you've been fucked by religion, which most people have, I would say try to recreate prayer. Try to imagine that it is your duty to write a new mythology in which you get to pray. That privilege is given back to you. Because a person who does not know how to communicate and ask for help from the unknowable part of themselves has no contact. I have reason, I have a mind, I have yes and no, likes and dislikes, good and bad, I get that. And that's something that I have regardless of whether I pray or not. But if I pray, I'm given what is called pause and pause stops time and it allows this third force to enter. It allows us to have a neutral force that makes decisions for us. And I believe that on the wings of that neutral force, a completely different life is created. And I think actually, if we don't pray, our life is just basically all an accident. Who we marry, kind of kid we produce, what we do for a living, how we look, how we dress, who we're friends with, where we live, it all becomes kind of decided for us by an unconscious string of agreements that we've made. But if we pray and just say, what do you want? Not you, God almighty bearded dude in the sky, but you, like my, my truest self, what do, you, what do you want? And if we just hear the whisper of that and then just start to take those actions. And I'm going to say, you know, for anyone who's listening, like it's not always pleasant. You know, we could take those actions. A lot of it is going to be riddled with failure and rejection and loss and not getting what we want. But if we really hear the whisper and we actually go for it, most people won't see that. Most people will just see, I don't have no idea what Maya Angelou went through, but all of us know what Maya Angelou left us. True. You've touched on something about asking for help. It's the prayer and asking for help asking for support. Where did it happen somewhere along the way that most of us became conditioned not to ask for help? How did that happen? And how can we break free of that cycle? I think we were taught to be self-sufficient, you know, and that we didn't, we needed to pull up our bootstraps and like pull it together and pull through and I think that it's a, it's a coping strategy and it's a survival mechanism that's really very rudimentary in fight or flight. 
I think most people, whether they know it or not, have an addiction. Like a lot of people, they don't know that, you know, you know if you're addicted to cocaine because that's like super obvious, right? But I don't think most people get that they're addicted to their sympathetic nervous system. Their sympathetic nervous system, which is also called fight or flight, is, is an addictive state. It's a state of like, oh my God, oh my God. I got the car. Oh my God. I got the guy. Oh my God. He, t- he swiped me on Tinder. Oh my God. Oh my God. Like that state. And then followed by, Oh God, I didn't get what I wanted. Oh, oh God, I'm going to die. Oh God. I, you know, and this kind of like this rise of high and down of low. And then because we're addicted to that and we don't even know it, we don't even know what the parasympathetic nervous state looks like. And if we do, we get afraid of it, right? Like if you go to a yoga class or a meditation class or a breathwork class and you start to feel that calm sensation, I think for many of us who are addicted to the sympathetic nervous system, we immediately rush back. We go get a coffee afterwards or we'll go get, get a glass of wine. We try to go back to our ups and downs. And so that is something I think that most of us are taught to, I don't know how I just diverged into the sympathetic nervous system, but I do think people have an addiction to that. And when you pray, you're sort of being guided back to your parasympathetic nervous system, which is like smooth sailing. And you know, when someone has that vibe, you're like, oh, they look really relaxed. Yes. And I had so many moments just play out in my mind, listening to this and thinking, wow, there was that moment and that moment. And this is really hard and I don't want to go back there to that roller coaster, but that roller coaster happened. You you just literally made me think through all of these different moments that make me think, yes, it is quite possible that all of us have an addiction of some sort, even if it's not obvious. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Is there somewhere that we can read more about this? Is this in your book? My book is so yummy. If you read, don't just sit there. It's wonderful. It's super easy to read because it's 44 chapters and each chapter is like a little nugget. You can read it in order. You can read it like a tarot deck. It's totally fine, but it really is just about reading those little chapters and boom. Reading more about addiction. I think that might be in an upcoming book or in some of my courses in terms of reading about that. Because addiction is always really framed with the context of illegal prostitution or drugs or and, and, and things that will get you into trouble. But drama can get you into trouble, but, yeah. <laughs> but not usually the illegal kind. Right. Gossip, drama, not illegal. Right. But when you think of the perpetual state of going after accomplishments and the roller coaster that that can yield, that's interesting in and of itself because that is a potential addiction, right? It's that high you get once you've succeeded and then it makes the next roller coaster, however awful it is, more bearable because you have hope that maybe this roller coaster ride is going to be different. And you could even put that in the the realm of, you know, infertility or what have you. Like maybe this roller coaster outcome, this won't be so such a huge roller coaster. Maybe this time there won't be, you know, the upside down loops. And this time it'll it'll land much more smoothly. 
the thoughts that you're putting into my mind are just amazing. So yes, I want to read your first book. And secondly, I'm going to read the second book, whichever you're coming up with. I'm very excited about this. You heard it first here. (laughs) Am I totally making this up? Do you have plans to write another book? Yes, for sure. Yeah. I'm in the middle of writing a deck of cards right now, but after that will be another book. And I have several courses coming out this year as well. It's amazing. Are you doing anything with children or do you or do you plan to teach Cash and Sunday about all of these amazing tools that you have? Oh, of course. Yeah. I do stuff with children and I've created some meditations for children that are available on my website. They're free. But I don't know. I I think my vision for the future, like after I've done like the first 10 things that are on my list to do, my ultimate vision would be to have meditation and personal development work be included in school curriculums. So that's something that is of the highest, the highest vision in my mind. And how has motherhood changed your work outside of the different types of work that you do right now? You're focused on the higher calling of using your voice for education and and having a, a larger platform. But how has motherhood changed your work in your soul? Being a mom is crazy. You know, I think it just, it wasn't an option for me. I knew for sure that I was going to be a mom and I felt an agreement. You know, we talked about agreements earlier in this, in this talk. I just felt an agreement with two souls for sure. It just felt like a non-negotiable thing. I don't know if it's changed my work. I would say that it's softened me a little. I think I'm way, way more exhausted. And so like, I just have very, way less time for drama. Like when I was younger, I had so much more time to think about myself and my problems and just be super self-absorbed. And also that like ennui, like I used to wander around New York City just being like, what is the meaning of it all? You know, like all that kind of like time on my hands, you know, I do not have that kind of time today. Like I literally don't even have time. I, I don't think I even get depressed anymore. Not because I'm better than anyone else, because I literally don't fucking have time for it today. I used to get depressed all the time. Like I would just be like, it was like a Wednesday and I was like, I just feel depressed. I just don't know why. And now I'm like, it's Wednesday. Like I have two hours to myself and I'm going to go X, Y, and Z in that time. I'm going to go meditate. I'm going to go like do my infrared sauna. I'm going to write something, you know, I'm going to read some spiritual texts. I'm going to connect with someone I love. I'm definitely not like, let me spend this time being depressed. So I think you're saying that existentialism is an extension of depression. Yeah. I mean, I would, yeah, maybe existentialism because it has been mostly brought to us by like men, right? Like that have more time (laughs) that I'm just like, I don't know, but being a fucking mom. Oh, then then my husband also, like we are so in it as parents, both of us equally, but like me, I can just say, speak for myself. I just say as a mom, depression went out the window as soon as I became a mom. I, and again, it's something you don't think because the, the price is so high, you know, being a mom, it sucks the life out of you. It drains you. It's exhausting. It's an all day affair. It never ends. You're obsessed with them. You think about them even once you go to sleep, even though you're tired of them, it doesn't matter. Like you're just obsessed. And so you would think that would be detractive. Like you think that would take away from your ability to find enlightenment or whatever. But the truth is, is that it makes life easier. Even though it's like an insane amount of work, it makes life easier. I like that reframe. 
And it's interesting, too, because when you think about anxiety and depression, because there are a lot of moms out there that have depression and anxiety. I mean, I get anxiety, too. But I think about where is that stemming from? Like, where does that anxiety and that depression stem from? Is it from being in my own head during those down moments? Like I'm just now I'm like really thinking deeply. No. And I know, I mean, some of this is, is you can't explain, right? Like there, there could be something going on in the mind, right? It it could be scientific. It, It could be medical. I mean, there are so many reasons why we have depression and anxiety as a whole in our culture. In fact, there is probably more anxiety and depression than ever before moms and non-moms included. It's fascinating. Do you think that the work that you do helps to counter that? I mean, I'm going to guess yes, but I'd love to hear how and why it does. It absolutely does. I think it's the matter of like, I was bringing meditation into my world. And then I started bringing breath work into my world. And then I added in the somatic practices. And when I fused all three of those together, and again, the somatic means movement, right? There was a movement-based practices based on those anxieties. So like, do I feel anxiety today? Yes. Do I feel shame today? Yes. Do I feel doubt sometimes? Yes. Like, do I feel sadness or grief sometimes? Yes. I just told you I was like crying myself while holding my baby last night. Like that happened, right? It's just the difference is when I use meditation, breath work, and somatic in the way that I have formulated, what happens is this allowing, and I am allowed to be in a state of anxiety today. Instead of running from it or trying to fix it or trying to medicate it or trying to solve it, I actually go into it as I would like making love to a lover. I go into the anxiety and I let it dance me, like I was saying before with the Maya Angelou thing, like I let it dance me around, whether that be through movement or through breath or through crying or through shaking, I let it be. And then that anxiety that I would have in the past shoved away or tried to fix because I wanted to be enlightened at all times, I go in and it has a message. Just like when I said, like, and you ask that voice, what should I do? Anxiety is a thing. It's just there to tell you something. And if we learn to actually be with it, it's there to share a message with us. It's like, oh, maybe you should whatever, take a nap, or maybe you should go to the ocean and put your feet in the water. Maybe you need to call a friend or maybe you need, whatever, but it has a direction inside of it. So sitting in the discomfort has value for our parasympathetic nervous system. Yes. I wouldn't say sitting, but moving into the moving discomfort. Moving into the discomfort. Yes, with breath and silence and and movement, if you use those things and move into the discomfort using the tools, there's something in there. And it's shocking like when it hits you because I'll do my somatic practices. I have these signature somatic practices. When I do them, I find I'm doing the breath and I'm doing the movement and all of a sudden the voice will come and it like hits me with a message. Is this in the book? This particular thing is not in the first book. This is all second book stuff. Okay. All right. I am like, I'm in. I you got to read the first book to get to the second book, though. So you definitely want to read the first one. Well, I'm reading the first one, and I can't wait for the second one. I'm going to be bugging you constantly, sending you text messages. Piet, when is it coming? I, like, I need this in my life, right? That's okay. But then I have to take a step back. 
They cannot become my roller coaster, right? I'm kidding. But no, this is this is beautiful. Thank you for sharing this. And I know we've talked a little bit about your next book. Is there anything else that's lighting you up right now that you want to share with us? In terms of work I'm putting into the world, I really did just produce three courses. So those are going to be coming out this year. I definitely think those are going to be some hands-on, incredible things to have just to kind of jump in and do my practices. There are these little vignettes, very bite-sized practices, like eight minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, really short that you can pop into any day. That's going to be somatic breath work and meditation in terms of the practices that I share in those courses. Yeah. And then in terms of what else, I just released a record. I, I make music. So it's something that people can use while they're doing my breath work. And for anyone who hasn't experienced my breath work, you can find some of it on my IGTV or Russell Brand has featured my breath work on YouTube. So you can find it there. But essentially, I would recommend getting the courses if you really want to go deeper and do the breath work with me. I would love to include the links to everything, the courses and the music in the show notes. So I'm going to hit you up after this for that. Okay. Courses have not been released yet, but I'll give you my website and I'll give you the music and I will give you everything that you need. Wonderful. Well, I'm very excited to share more of your practice with the world. And I'm so grateful that you shared with me today. It's so special and meaningful and I feel calmer, quite frankly, after talking to you, but I always do. Yay. So thank you. Such a joy being together. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Over Again podcast. I hope that you learned something from today's episode. If you enjoyed this, please leave a five-star review about All Over Again on Apple Podcasts. Please also let me know what spoke to you about the episode on our social media channels at All Over Again Podcast. I can't wait to hear from you. 